just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Welcome to Holy Smoke, The Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. This was the month in which Pope Francis was expected to permit the ordination of married Catholic men as priests on an experimental basis in the Amazon in response to a desperate shortage of clergy. He didn't do it, despite a strong recommendation from a synod of bishops last October. His official response to the synod, when it landed, said absolutely nothing about married priests. His liberal supporters have cried enough tears to water a rainforest. Conservatives are crowing. Lots of people are very confused. What on earth happened? I'm here with Dr. Ed Condon, who's Washington bureau chief of the Catholic News Agency and a canon lawyer. And he has some interesting thoughts on it. So Ed, I felt that last week, Pope Francis dropped a bit of a bombshell, only it wasn't one that we read a great deal about because it was the sort of bombshell that the liberal media and his own supporters didn't particularly want him to drop. And even conservatives didn't want to make a fuss about it because a lot of them didn't want to be seen to be agreeing with Pope Francis. But essentially, he issued his apostolic exhortation, Querida Amazonia, which is a response to the, I think, utterly fatuous synod of bishops on the Amazon, which voted for the ordination of married men as priests. And Francis has disregarded that. There's no real reference to it in the document, not even in a footnote. And clearly, this is not something that he's planning to do anytime soon. And the headlines, insofar as there were any, were of a liberal pope who had let people down. And you could sense from some of his more hardline supporters the pain and the anger in their voices. But my question... To you, I think, Ed, is was Pope Francis ever really in favour of ordaining married men as priests? Well, no, he wasn't. And I think it's ironic, really, because Pope Francis couldn't have been any clearer about this right the way along the line. You know, a lot of people have got the impression, more or less because they were told to take this impression by the people pushing for married priests in the Amazon, that this was the Pope's idea, that this is what he wanted, that he called the Synod on the Amazon as a way of discussing the idea of married clergy, when in fact the opposite is true. The Synod of the Amazon is part of, you know, the Synod of Bishops in Rome holds these meetings on different areas of the world on a regular basis, so it was just the Amazon's turn. And as they were leading up to the Synod, a lot of people in the Amazon, mostly Germans, I should say, or at least funded by Germans, said, well, we want to talk about the idea of married priests. And the Pope said, well, contrary to popular belief, the purpose of a Synod is for the Pope to hear different points of view. So if that's what you want to talk about it, um, you know, take a vote, put it on the agenda, and you can talk about it. And that's what they did. Now, this didn't come from Pope Francis to begin with. And even throughout the Synod preparations, he was giving quotes to journalists and 
Um, they were being reported, although studiously ignored by many people, saying things very much in favor of clerical celibacy, saying that he didn't like the idea of doing away with a celibate priesthood. Um, at one point, he actually quoted Paul VI in saying, for me, I'd, I'd rather die than give up clerical celibacy. And yet, despite all of this, it somehow seems to have caught everyone by surprise. Well, I think one reason it's caught people by surprise is that so many apparently well-connected supporters of Francis, including cardinals like Cardinal Marx, who has just stepped down as head of the German Bishops' Conference, were giving the impression that this was almost a done deal. And it surprises me that they didn't know that the Pope wasn't inclined to make this change. Well, I think something that's come out very clearly from the handling of the expectations around this document is that a lot of people just assumed the Pope was going to rubber stamp whatever they produced. We had a lot of talk about this idea that the Pope wasn't even going to issue uh, his own document or letter in response to the Synod. He was just going to sign his name to the actual document produced by the Synod itself and sort of adopt it as his own. Now, what we've seen here is he has no intention of being bounced into something that he doesn't like himself. And I think a lot of people, and we've seen this developing as a pattern over the years of Francis's papacy now, this is a pope who does lean what, you know, some people will call left or progressive, if you like, on some issues, but on others very much not so. He's, he's a very traditional Catholic in some, in some ways. And I think they thought, well, if he's with us on some things, he'll be with us on all things. And if we've decided that this is how the idea of Pope Francis is going to respond, then we can pretty much put that in the bank. And I think in the end, they found themselves the bad bet that way. Well, there's an academic in America, an Italian academic called Massimo Fagioli, who until now has always been thought of as somebody very well connected in papal circles, who put out or gave, gave an interview, I think, rather than tweeted, something along the lines of, you know, the big reforms from Pope Francis that we were expecting aren't now going to happen. It read like the statement of a broken man. It puzzles me, however, that Vatican expert Massimo Fagioli and a whole load of other people, including Father Antonio Spadaro, the Jesuit who's often thought of as the closest advisor to Pope Francis, had kidded themselves that this historic change was about to happen. Well, I think what we've seen for a lot of people who've been most publicly and vocally disappointed is there's a difference between the sort of self-appointed and self-reinforcing interpreters of Pope Francis and those who actually speak for the Pope. I read the article that Dr. Fagioli wrote that you referred to, and he seems to have misunderstood the nature of a synod, as a lot of people did, in saying, you know, we've got a problem now because we've got a pope who hasn't listened to a synod, and he must. And this betrays, I think, the risks of having a very modern and limited horizon in understanding both ecclesiology and theology and the history of the church. Synods are really a consultative body for the pope. They're not councils. They're not ecumenical councils. They're not representative of anything. They don't have sort of binding authority. And this is this is a problem or a misunderstanding that you see cropping up all over the place, not just in response to the Synod on the Amazon, but the German synodal process, which is currently underway. You mentioned Cardinal Marx announcing he was stepping down as the head of the German Bishops' Conference. Now, depending on who you listen to, half of the church are convinced this is because Cardinal Marx thinks he's about to get promoted to Rome. But the other half, m many of them in Germany, are saying this is because Cardinal Marx has been seen as the man who failed to deliver by many of the German bishops that, you know, he promised them married priests in the Amazonian synod document from the Pope and that this would be the sort of hat the Germans could wear in bringing in married clergy in their own diocese. And they're very bitterly disappointed about it. 
There's been a lot of talk in liberal circles about the Pope not closing the door on the ordination of married men, which after all is something that happens in the Eastern Church and former Protestants and Anglican clergymen are quite routinely ordained. But to me, it has the feel of cognitive dissonance. The Pope hasn't closed the door on it, and therefore perhaps we can expect to see it happen on an ad hoc basis. Perhaps this is the Pope's subtle way of permitting a change without sticking his head above the parapet. Well, I think when you hear people say that, it always strikes me as slightly fantastical, because, of course, the Pope hasn't closed the door on the idea of married clergy, because there's no doctrinal bar to it. This is a universal discipline of the Latin Church, but it is that, a discipline. Now, the Pope hasn't closed the door on it any more than he's closed the door on anything else that is theologically possible. That doesn't mean he's inclined to do it. In fact, if the last year has taught us anything, it's that the Pope isn't going to do something which he's clearly not inclined to do. It's a, it's a telltale sign, I think, when you can look at two different diametrically opposed outcomes and say they both tend towards the same thing. That if Pope Francis had allowed married clergy in the Amazon, it would show that he was in favor of married clergy. If the Pope um, says no to married clergy in the Amazon, this shows he's clearly in favor of married clergy. It's just a bit irrational, really. Do you think Pope Francis rather enjoys sowing this sort of confusion? He once famously said, let's make a mess. And as Ross Dallet pointed out in his book, well, that's the one thing he certainly has managed to do. But I sometimes think that the Pope loves nothing more than, well, as I said in The Spectator, throwing people under the bus or at least pulling the rug from underneath them. It's part of his personality. Well, I think the Pope definitely doesn't appreciate being taken for granted or being viewed or used as a rubber stamp, and I think there was certainly an element of that here. The original draft, the first draft, if you like, of this uh, synodal exhortation included language on the appointment of married clergy for service in the Amazon. In fact, it was lifted verbatim from the final synodal document, and only one person is capable of removing that language, and that was the Pope, and that's what he did. And I strongly suspect that he was presented with a, a draft of a document for his signature that basically treated him as um, a formality, treated his approval as something that could be taken for granted. And I, I don't imagine he liked that very much. This leaked draft is something that really he allowed to be leaked. He sent it out very, very widely for consultation, perhaps to take the temperature of the church. It's a rather Begolian or Peronist thing to do in some ways, I think to raise expectations and then dash them. Well, I, I would take, I think, perhaps a slightly more nuanced view of the way in which that first draft was circulated. I don't know that I'd say the Pope was taking the temperature of the church. The temperature of the church was fairly clear. We had, you know, something like, I think it was three or four cardinals issued books on clerical celibacy during the Synod in the Amazon and following it. We had the Pope Emeritus, along with Cardinal Sarah, issue a book defending clerical celibacy. We've had the, the entire German church effectively holding a synod in, in which the sort of stated aim was to do away with clerical celibacy. I think the lines were fairly carefully drawn. I, I think, and this is me speculating here, but if, if I were of a mind to say what was the Pope trying to do in ordering a, a wide enough consultation that this draft really leaked far and wide, I would say maybe he wanted everyone to see exactly what he was taking out before he took it out. Interesting. Can we just put this famous book by Cardinal Seurat with with a co-authored contribution by Pope Benedict. Can we put that book in context? I was very struck by the panic that ensued when it was published, but also struck by the fact that when it was initially published, Andrea Tornielli, who's director of the Pope's communications, 
welcomed it. And then within a couple of days, we're being told that this was an outrageous challenge to Pope Francis's authority and that he was going to slap down Sarah and the Pope Emeritus, neither of which he did. Well, I think here again, we're seeing the difference between those who have decided that they are Pope Francis's spokespersons and uh, interpreters and those who actually are. And, and I think this whole synod on the Amazon and the question of married clergy has shown the real reality gap between those two groups of people. Um, this book by Cardinal Seurat and the Pope Emeritus on clerical celibacy was, you know, the publication was announced, I think, on a Sunday evening or Monday morning. And, and it was immediately followed by an editorial from, as you say, Andre Tornielli, who didn't just welcome the book. He welcomed the book as a faithful contribution, a faithful and loyal contribution to Pope Francis by the Pope Emeritus and Cardinal Seurat. And it wasn't just framed as an interesting talking point. It was framed as something done in service to Pope Francis. And he went on to list three or four, I think, instances where the Pope had said exactly what this book says in, in defense of an unmarried priesthood. So it clearly didn't catch either Pope Francis or his official spokespeople by surprise. They clearly knew it was coming and were ready to talk about it and welcome it. It was those outside who were shocked by it. And how? I don't know if you read the Twitter feed of Austin Ivory, the self-appointed papal hagiographer, but um, Ivory was so angry that he put it about that Benedict was too senile to have contributed his essay on celibacy, that he could only concentrate for a few minutes at a time. And basically, a whole bunch of them accused Cardinal Seurat of elder abuse, as they call it in the US, which was outrageous. And I'm not surprised Seurat was so furious. Well, and I think the interesting thing was the pushback we saw from Cardinal Seurat very quickly, that he produced letters from the Pope Emeritus saying, you know, here's, here's what I've written. You're more than welcome to use it. You're more than welcome to publish it. You know, it's very clear that, and this is, you know, subsequently borne out by the publishers of the book who've refused to change the co-author billing of the two, saying, no, no, we're absolutely satisfied that Benedict wrote what is list he's listed as writing here, and that makes him a co-author. But again, I think we're seeing a very clear and perhaps unpleasant illustration of how people can become a bit unmoored from reality in their hopes and expectations for what Pope Francis is. And I think, and we get a bit of this, I think, in every papacy in the end, which is it becomes increasingly easy to see those who have separated the sort of public image and perception of the Pope from the Pope as a person. And I think that's what we're seeing here with Pope Francis, that, you know, we're well out of the heady days of sort of the first five years where this Pope from the other side of the world was a bit of an unknown quantity and seemed to suggest that everything was up for grabs. Fagioli and Ivory and others did make complete fools of themselves. But when Fagioli said, this Pope is now not going to produce any of the reforms for which we hoped so fervently, I did understand what he was saying. I actually think it would be a good idea if the Catholic Church ordained more married men as priests, though I don't think this is the right way to go about it, and I certainly wouldn't want the German bishops anywhere near it. But this was a tangible change that the Pope, had he been so minded, could have made that would have distinguished his pontificate. As it is, confronted as we are by the failure of financial reform, by confusion over just about everything he said relating to faith and morals, I feel we're left with a Pope who's done astonishingly little in nearly seven years. 
Well, I, I suppose you could you could interpret some of the things he's done uh, as being a radical change in music rather than lyrics to church teaching, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. But I also think that Pope Francis has, and I think some of the things you, you've just mentioned point to this, um, has been the unreasonable subject of unreasonable expectation, that people expect a sort of end-of-history pope who is going to finally achieve that great rupture with Catholic history and tradition and teaching and discipline that uh, a certain and, I'd say, shrinking section of, of the church have been looking for. He has failed to deliver on that so far, and I fully expect he will continue to fail to deliver that uh, in the future because, in the end, he is the pope, and the pope is Catholic, whether or not they, they, they choose to be shocked by it. But this idea that Pope Francis really arrived loaded with this expectation that he was going to change the nature of the priesthood, he was going to change the nature of the church's teaching on marriage, on sexuality, on all of these things, they continue to build up this expectation and, and he continues to, as they see it, fail to deliver. But it's worth remembering, these people didn't elect Francis as pope and he's not accountable to them. And in the end, if they decide that they want to hug him close on some things because they like the way he speaks about, for example, the environment or economics or politics, it doesn't mean he's their man on issues around, say, clerical celibacy or things of that nature. And I think this whole synodal process in the church really shows the way in which people fail to fail to see what's going on. Pope Francis didn't invent the Synod of Bishops. It's been going on since the Second Vatican Council. John Paul II had countless synods. So did Benedict. But for some reason, the three that Pope Francis has presided over have been loaded with this expectation each time. You know, we started off with the synod on the family, and this was going to definitively tear up the church's discipline on, on divorce and remarriage, and it didn't. We got a, an apostolic exhortation with a, with a still hotly debated footnote, but no more than that. Then we had the synod on young people, which was absolutely, we were told, definitely, definitely going to see the church change its teaching on human sexuality and incorporate LGBT language into the documents and teaching of the church. That failed to happen. And now we've had the synod on the Amazon, which was absolutely going to do away with clerical celibacy. And again, hasn't happened. I, I think at a certain point, you have to wonder how many guesses these guys get um, while continuing to be wrong. I like your phrase about him changing the music rather than the lyrics. Now, as it happens, Pope Francis has very good taste in music, better even than Benedict's. He quite rightly regards Wilhelm Furtwängler as the greatest conductor of all time. But if we are going to use that metaphor, Corita Amazona is definitely Paul Inwood rather than Palestrina. I mean, it really does read to me like the same old environmental platitudes, which don't particularly gain in authority from being repeated by a pope who I suspect hasn't read the whole document or certainly isn't really familiar with some of the complicated arguments that are being made in his name. It's depressingly biased. He bangs on and on about the environment, using very familiar language and arguments that will do nothing to convince people who aren't already convinced of his position. It's unthinkingly hostile to capitalism, but then that's Bergoglio for you. So, as I say... These are undistinguished documents that have been emerging from synods, whether from the Synod Fathers or whether from the Pope himself. Well, you say that, and perhaps that's that's one way of looking at it. I, I, I would note what Cardinal Cherney said in the presentation of this document, by the way, which is he was asked about 
uh, the synodal exhortation sort of incorporating into itself a particular view of science and economics and, you know, saying, is the church making this magisterial teaching? And he said, look, and, and this, by the way, is, is someone who I, I think it would be fair to say is quite liberal on these issues and, and aligned with the priorities and language outlined in this document. But he said, it's important to bear in mind that for these, magi- for these papally magisterial documents like synodal exhortations, they bind only to the extent in which they talk about faith and morals. If they talk about, for example, poetry, and there's a lot of that in Corita Amazonia, there's a lot of um, quotes from Pablo Neruda, whose poetry I cannot stand, but as a Catholic, I'm not, I'm not obliged to start liking him because the Pope quoted him. And I think, you know, you say that these, these synodal documents are coming from the Pope are unremarkable or undistinguished. Well, how many post-synodal apostolic exhortations have we read? You know, uh, can anyone name, apart from, say, the, the famous one that everyone always quotes of John Paul II's Familiaris Consortio, that was from the mid-80s. Can anyone name one of the apostolic exhortations that came after that? I mean, these are not documents that have traditionally been earth-shattering or, you know, epoch-defining. So, again, this is, I, I would I would submit at least one interpretation of events is that the Pope is being very normal as a Pope in this. He's holding these synodal sessions, and the stuff that's coming out of them is fairly business as usual. He's writing boring, platitudinous documents that will be forgotten as soon as they're read, if they're read at all. Probably just as well. Ed Condon, thank you very much. Always a pleasure.